Lawmakers are once again proposing changes to telework and remote work for federal employees. The newly introduced Telework Reform Act would set some new reporting requirements on the government's workplace arrangements. The bipartisan legislation is somewhat of a deviation from the goals of the Show Up Act from earlier this year. Here with the details is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Eric. So there's a lot in the Telework Reform Act, but uh, let's start with some of the basics. What would the impacts be for federal employees specifically? So what this bill would do generally is codify or put into law the definitions that OPM has currently for what telework and remote work mean for federal employees. And what that means in practice is that federal employees would have to report to the office at least twice per two-week pay period. Now, that's because the working definition of telework, as the Office of Personnel Management puts it, is that employees are expected to report to work at an agency work site on a regular and recurring basis each pay period. So by setting that into law, these lawmakers are trying to make things a little bit supposedly more consistent for federal employees and just put that into legal terms rather than just a current definition. And one other thing that this would do for federal employees, notably the Telework Reform Act, would require agencies and employees to renew their telework and remote work agreements every single year. So the idea would be, you know, you assess performance, assess how things are going and make the decision from there of whether telework should be renewed for that given employee for another year. So setting some of these requirements, this is, you know, going to if it was enacted, it would change things pretty significantly for federal employees. All right. And so what about the agencies themselves? What would be the requirements for them under the Telework Reform Act? There's definitely a lot of stuff in here, Eric, for what agencies would have to do specifically when it comes to telework and remote work. The bill has a bit of a focus on data and reporting. So agencies, for example, would have to report to Congress on different aspects of telework and remote work, its potential value, any expected cost savings, productivity outcomes, if there was an increase in remote work and telework. Now, this follows after a lot that we've seen in Congress uh, questioning about data of telework and remote work of federal employees. So the idea here is to just have that be a little bit more, again, consistent across agencies of what they're providing to Congress about how that would look. In addition to the report that report to Congress, agencies would also have be required under the Telework Reform Act to identify different job classifications that would benefit from remote work opportunities. So this is looking at, you know, maybe trying to diversify what types of jobs make sense for telework and remote work. Of course, many federal employees do have to report in person just because that's what makes sense with their position. But this would make agencies require or require agencies to look at, you know, what would make sense for having remote work opportunities elsewhere And that would, in a sense, the lawmakers are hoping also diversify the candidates that are coming into those positions. For example, geographically, you can have more people work from, you know, anywhere you want if you have a remote work job. Interesting. And so what requirements on telework data were already out there? What did agencies have to provide Congress before this legislation and what did they do with it when they had it? 
Right. So there are already requirements on telework data and reporting that do exist. And again, the Telework Reform Act, this bill has just been introduced. So it's, you know, this is all just a proposal from lawmakers. It's it's from senators. It's from senators Lankford and Cinema. So if it was enacted, it would try to kind of scale up the amount of data and reporting requirements uh, that exist. But the ones that do already exist from the Office of Personnel Management they do a, an annual data call, as they call it, to all these agencies who have to report to OPM on how many teleworking and remote working employees there are and other information on their telework and remote work programs. OPM then compiles that information and provides it to Congress. And this happens every single year since uh, the, telework, the Telework Act of 2010 was passed. But in those years that OPM has been sending these reports to Congress, you've seen some lawmakers not satisfied with the level of the level or detail of the data that is coming from different agencies. So, for example, in OPM's report, they note that a few agencies aren't able to provide information either due to the classified nature of their work or because accurate records of teleworking and remote working employees aren't available So that's caught the attention of a lot of members of Congress, particularly House Republicans who have called on agencies to provide a lot more detailed and nuanced approach to to data collection on their telework and remote work programs. We're speaking with Federal News Network reporter Drew Friedman about the Telework Reform Act. Now, the bill also focuses on recruitment of military spouses, something that should make it a little bit more popular. How would that aspect of the bill work if it was enacted? The one aspect of the bill that this does address is that under the Telework Reform Act, agencies would be able to appoint military spouses, spouses of law enforcement officers and veterans as well, to remote eligible federal jobs outside the competitive hiring process. So the idea is give agencies a little bit more flexibility and be able to bring in military spouses more easily to the federal workforce. This follows after, you know, there's a lot of efforts to bring more military spouses into the government. It's something that the Biden administration pushed on uh, agencies earlier this year to use a flexibility that already already actually exists for federal agencies. There's a military spouse hiring authority that in the same idea lets agencies forgo the traditional hiring procedures that they have for most positions and more easily or more flexibly hire military spouses. There's been some concern that that authority is being a little bit underused. So this idea here with the bill would be to specifically focus on potential remote opportunities for military spouses. And the lawmakers who introduced the bill say that it's being made because military spouses and military families generally have to move around a lot. So the the idea of remote work is very appealing to military spouses who may not be in the same place for more than a couple of years at a time. Gotcha. Now, this issue has been kind of fermenting ever since we came out of the pandemic. Aside from this bill, what else has Congress been saying about federal employees teleworking? Well, Eric, the one thing that you did mention at the top that I can go into a little bit here is the Show Up Act. This is a bill that was introduced in the House in January and actually cleared the House at the end of the month uh, earlier this year. The idea there was the House lawmakers are... uh, Uh, At least House Republicans are looking to return federal employees to pre-pandemic work arrangements and largely scale back the level of telework that we see currently for federal employees. Uh, Under that legislation, agencies would have the opportunity to expand telework, but only if they could 
prove or certify that it would have a positive effect on work performance. Now, the show up that show up act, it was also introduced in the Senate in May this year. And that bill is very different from this telework reform act, which takes a little bit more middle of the road approach. The telework reform act is also a bipartisan bill, whereas the show up act is largely uh, only supported by Republicans. So that's where you see a little bit of the difference here in how Congress is trying to approach this. And the other thing that is notable to point out is that the House Oversight and Accountability Committee has been very laser focused on the idea of telework and remote work for federal employees. They've held a hearing just in September about uh, to question several agencies on their telework and remote work policy changes, how that's affecting productivity and everything of that nature. And they're looking to schedule another hearing in that in that area uh, coming up in the com- in the couple of weeks here. So there's, you know, still a lot of pressure, a lot of questions coming from Congress when it comes to telework. And when it comes to the Telework Reform Act, this is, of course, one bill that was just introduced in the Senate. There's no House companion bill yet, but we'll just kind of have to see how things play out. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thank you so much. Thanks, Eric. And you can find her story on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many 
different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any 
technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.